Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the distinct honor of connecting with Dr. Michael Bruce. He provided great insights into his background and how that evolved into becoming a sleep specialist. We dove deep into the impact of chronotypes and genetics, as well as how movement can influence our chronotype, as well as other types of lifestyle strategies. We spoke at great length about melatonin, as well as other hormones, including cortisol, serotonin, dopamine, leptin, and others. We touched on biohacking as it relates to sleep quality, as well as the value of intermittent fasting and eating less often. He cautioned us about orthosomnia, as well as the net impact of napping on our sleep scores. And lastly, we talked about some of his favorite items that he incorporates into his own sleep modalities and left me with a lot of things to think about. I hope you will enjoy this podcast as much as I did recording it. And you definitely want to check out Dr. Bruce's book, The Power of When, which is probably my favorite of his, but also his new book, Energize. I would love for you to share with listeners a bit about your background, because it sounds like you started your graduate education in one area and then pivoted into sleep physiology. And so since everyone that listens to my podcast knows how passionate I am about sleep quality, it's completely serendipitous that I have you here today. Well, let me tell you how I ended up becoming the sleep doctor. So I went to Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York, uh, did, where I did my undergraduate uh, studies, where I studied psychology. After that, I went to Bryn Mawr, which is just outside of Philadelphia, where I did all of my pre-meds in one year. That was a terrible, terrible year. Just letting you know, there was nothing fun about, I mean, four pre-meds with lab all at the same time, realized I did not want to go to medical school at that point in time and said, I'm going to go get a PhD in clinical psychology, because that was kind of where my head was at. I wanted to be a sports psychologist. So I wanted to teach athletes how to throw faster or throw harder, run faster, you know, all the fun, cool stuff. To be very honest with you, I was the nerdiest boy in school. I had the big glasses with the crazy hair. Like there wasn't a girl that would talk to me to save my life. I figured if I was hung out with the athletes, I could maybe, you know, meet some people that way. And so I was always interested and I was kind of a little bit of a sports guy growing up. And the best program, so I got to the University of Georgia uh, to get my PhD, did work there, great sports psychology program. I worked my way through school in the electrophysiology department. So I had to have a job throughout graduate school and I knew how to take apart very complicated machines that could measure any signals from your body and put them back together. Again, I'm kind of that nerdy, weird, kind of wonky guy that likes to take shit apart and put it back together. So I went to get into this internship and it was at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm from Sandy Springs, Georgia. So going to Jackson, Mississippi sounded like, you know, could be a lot of fun for me, but I couldn't get into the program. So this was a program that was meant for the Harvards and the Yales and the Princetons of the world. University of Georgia, top 20 program, but it's not Harvard, right? But they had a sleep track that they were offering graduate students to go in. So I said, okay, here's my opportunity. I'm going to sell myself as a sleep guy 
And then I'm going to transfer as soon as I get there because the machines that they use in the sleep lab are identical to the machines that I've been working with for the last four years in graduate school. So I'm like, no problem. Like just because you're not going to let me in through the front door does not mean I'm not going to be in your program. It just means you haven't realized yet that I'm going to be in your program. So I get there, I get accepted. I get there, raise my hand the first day. They're like, Dr. Bruce, what's going on? I said, Hey, I want to transfer over to the sports psych. They said, we had a feeling you might want to do that. So here's the deal. You have to do the sleep for six months and then you can transfer to wherever you want to go. I said, no problem. How tough could this be? I sleep every night. This looks interesting. By the third day, I absolutely fell in love with clinical sleep medicine and I knew I would never change what I do. I help people like this. It's unbelievable. I mean, I've never in traditional clinical psychology, you got to understand it can take months even years before you see any form of treatment gains with your patients. I literally see people change their lives in 48 hours. It's unbelievable. It is magical, I guess, is the great word for it, because I have this opportunity with this knowledge base to be able to identify and assess in somebody and say, hey, I think you have undiagnosed sleep apnea, or I think you've got insomnia or narcolepsy. Let's see if we can fix that. And guess what? There are treatments, there are sometimes cures, and all of a sudden you change somebody's sleep, you change their life. And that was really impactful for me. I thought it was super cool. I thought it was a lot of fun. And I kept going from there. I did do one thing that was kind of crazy. After I finished the program, I went back and defended my dissertation and I got my first job. And so my first job was working for a group of pulmonologists who owned one sleep laboratory. And so I became the clinical director of their sleep laboratory. And then we were expanding the sleep laboratory out into multiple sleep labs. And so when I sat there for my first job, he said, you know, Michael, We'd like you, we're going to give you full benefits package, the whole deal. But at the end of the first year, you need to take and pass the sleep medicine boards. And I raised my hand and I said, uh, Dr. DeMarini, that's a medical board. I have a PhD in clinical psychology. I said, I, I can't take the medical board. He said, actually, there's a one-year window left open. You can take it. And if you fail, you're fired. Would you like the job? <laughs> and so I was like, okay, they were offering a great salary. I never in a million years thought that I was going to take, I mean, they were asking me to take a medical board without going to medical school. Right. So I came home to my girlfriend who is now my wife. And I said, you're not going to believe this. I got this great job and it's going to be awesome. And blah, blah, blah. Like it was at the point where I could actually afford health insurance. Like remember back in the day when you were just mm -hmm. at that point. And so, um, I didn't really tell her about the medical board part at first. And then later on in the week, I said, oh yeah. And by the way, it's only good for a year because they want me to take the medical boards. And she was like, you're not a doctor. And I'm like, I know I'm not a doctor. <laughs> She's like, they want you to take the medical medical boards. I said, yeah, about a week goes by. And she said, are you going to do it? I was like, what do you mean? She was like, are you going to take the medical boards? I was like, are you crazy? She said, I think you can do it. That was all it took. That was it. So I took a list. I had a reference list of 15 books, all textbooks. And so I taught myself neuroanatomy, neurochemistry. I taught myself pediatrics, general medicine. And I am one of 168 people in the world who have ever taken and passed the medical boards without going to medical school. That's an incredible story. And it really speaks to having some degree of moxie that you thought to yourself, okay, I can do this. I'm going to teach myself. I'm going to condense so many years medical education into one year. I'm going to take these boards. I'm going to execute this. Well, many of the listeners know that my whole background as a nurse practitioner was in cardiology. And so you can imagine 16 years in cardiology, we had our own sleep lab because almost everyone had sleep apnea or they had periods of apnea throughout the night. And most of them didn't sleep well for a variety of reasons. 
And I think most people don't think much about sleep. They just think I go to bed, I put my head on the pillow and then I wake up in the morning. And at least that's how my teenagers think. (laughs) I can say as a middle-aged person, I have a healthy amount of respect for sleep. And so, you know, from my perspective, I think until people start having sleep problems, they don't even think about it. And on so many levels, I don't think the past two years have helped a lot of people with their sleep quality. Maybe it has, maybe people are sleeping in more, trying to make a greater effort to get more high quality sleep, but it is a hugely problematic topic, not just gender specific, but certainly I lean towards working with women predominantly middle-aged women really struggle with sleep, which can be contributed to by so many factors. So you made this amazing pivot. You were obviously past your boards. You were loving what you're doing. And tell me when you started kind of doing the chronotype research, or when did you start looking into kind of personalizing this as part of your brand and your work? Well, you know, so first of all, thank you for noticing. So, you know, people seem to use sleep sort of as the shock absorber of their life. You know what I mean? Like I'm having a stressful day. I'm just going to stay up later and work harder. And that's supposed to be a good idea, right? (laughs) You know, I'm having an easy day. Oh, I'm going to now go out and party because I didn't have much to do as opposed to, oh, maybe I should be taking care of myself, those kind of things, right? So people use sleep as that kind of shock absorber of their lives. And another thing that you mentioned that was really interesting that I want to just double tap on quickly is we're in a kind of weird time right now, right? So the last two years or so, COVID has really changed people's outlook on sleep. Here's the unfortunate thing. It's gotten worse, not better. And it's really unfortunate because people could have taken so much advantage and actually improved their sleep dramatically over the last two years if they had just listened to a couple of things that I said. But the good news is we're here now and people can actually still learn quite a bit and adapt quite a bit. And so your question to me was chronotypes. When did I start looking at them and why did I start looking at them? It happened just before, well, actually about three and a half, four years before COVID hit, I had a patient who came in and to be very honest with you, I couldn't fix her. She was really had a significant issue. She couldn't fall asleep early. She was sleeping in and it was pretty terrible. I tried everything. I tried medication. I tried cognitive behavioral therapy. I tried everything, nothing. I mean, it was a big donut hole. So I brought her in and I'm like, we're going to just keep going at this and figuring this out. I'm a dog with a bone. You know, it's like, I'm just going to go at it and go at it and go at it until I friggin' figure it out. And she finally turned to me during one of our discussions. And she said, you know, if I could just sleep on a different time zone, I think my life would be perfect. And I was like, explain that to me. And she said, well, if I could just go to bed at one, get up at, you know, maybe eight 30, nine o'clock, go to work by like 10 30 work until like seven. And that like my day would be perfect. And I said, so why don't you do that? She said, well, I've got a husband, I've got kids, I've got a boss, I've got everybody else's schedule. It's not like my schedule. And I said, well, could you ask your boss to run an experiment just to see what would happen? And she said, I'm getting fired at the end of the week, Michael. I'm pretty sure. So I called up her boss. I said, can I call him? Sure. Called the boss. And I said, Hey, here's the story. I think there's something weird going on. I wanted to come in later. He said, I don't care what time she comes in. She's fired on Friday. Like no joke, no pressure, Michael, but this is what's going to happen. Right? So I said, great. Well, let's run the experiment, ran the experiment. I call him on Friday. You can't make this stuff up. I said, Hey, it's Dr. Bruce. He said, I have three more people. I want you to talk to. He didn't say one. He didn't say this was a, I got three more employees. I want you to talk to right now, Michael. And so I was like, okay, I'm on to something here. Right? So she turned out to be an extreme night owl or what I call a wolf. Her whole body 
doesn't stop moving until midnight, one o'clock. And so, of course, it was incredibly difficult for her to get up at 5 30, 6 o'clock in the morning to deal with the kids and, you know, the house duties and then get to work and all those other responsibilities that she had. And so, for me, I was like, hold on. I wonder how many of my other patients could have had this as an issue. And so, I started going back and looking, and we discovered that there's actually this is genetic. So people don't realize it, but it's called your chronotype. Now, people may not have heard of a chronotype as the word, but they probably heard of the concept. If anybody's ever been called an early bird or a night owl, those are chronotypes. So in my third book, The Power of When, which I'm so happy that you read, it's really a lot of fun because people can go to this thing called chronoquiz.com. That'll be in the show notes for people if they want it. And they can figure out what their chronotype is. And believe it or not, this unlocks all kinds of really, really cool stuff. So I can teach you the best time of day to have sex, eat a cheeseburger, ask your boss for a raise, sleep, drink coffee, intermittent fast, you name it, it's in there. And so we really dove in. We have over 220 studies in the book. And once you learn your chronotype, it gets really cool really quick. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. 
And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Well, it's really fascinating to me because throughout my adult lifetime, I've been that person and I kept saying, did I pick medicine or did medicine pick me? Because I can get up really early in the morning, but you get me at nine o'clock at night and I want to go to bed. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, as I was rereading your book, I was thinking, reflecting on my teenagers who are wolves. They are all teenagers are wolves, (laughs) all of them. Reflecting on my husband, who's a bear. I was like, I am a lion. And, And so I was reading it with great joy last night because my kids are like, that is so me. That is so right. And same thing with my husband (laughs) and my poor husband tries to live more aligned to my lion existence. So we try to get in bed at the same time. He struggles. Oh, he struggles. It's (laughs) poor guy. I have to give him credit. I'm like, I cannot stay up. It's so hard for me to stay up late at night. But what I love is that, you know, you talk about this genetic susceptibility. So you know, you mentioned one genetic susceptibility. I guess it's the PR3 in particular. Uh, the PR3 gene, that's correct. Yep. And so when you're looking at this, it's nature, not just nurture. And so we're more aligned. But do you feel like if all teenagers and young people, younger mm-hmm. people are more like wolves, is there a transitional point? Like, is it, you know, when their there frontal is. lobe is fully developed, is that mm-hmm. when they start transitioning to where they're kind of genetically designed to kind of thrive, I guess? So I call it chrono longevity. And so you actually go through almost all the chronotypes throughout your lifetime. So if you think about it, so you've got kids, right? So when they were itty bitty babies, you probably worked out perfectly with them because they were lions. They went to bed early. They got up early. So did you. That worked out perfect probably for your schedule. Once they kind of hit that two to three age range into like the six or seven, that kind of toddler kind of, then they're bears. They go to bed at a certain time. They wake up at a certain time, very consistent. You kind of know where their energy is during the daytime. Then you get to the teenage years where they turn into wolves. This is very difficult time. Anybody out there who's listening, if you have teenagers, I'm so sorry. It never gets much better, but I will tell you in the long run, I now have kids who have moved out of my house. It's all worthwhile in the long run. I swear to you. It doesn't feel like it at first, but I swear to you, it's all good in the long run. But yeah, they turn into wolves for sure. Then they hit about 18, 19, 20, and they seem to lock into one chronotype. That seems to last for them for about somewhere between 30 and 35 years, believe it or not. And then once you start to hit in that 50, 55 age range, so I just turned 54 last week, so I'm right in there, you start to see your melatonin production get earlier and earlier. And so you move from, let's say, being a wolf to being a bear or from being a bear to being a lion. 
those kind of things can happen actually quite easily as we get older and older. So you can experience almost all of the chronotypes. Now, the one chronotype that we haven't talked about is the dolphin. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to back up for a second and I'm going to give people all four of the chronotypes just so that they know what we're talking about. So in early bird, we've transformed them into lions. I mean, let's be honest, who doesn't want to be the king or the queen of the jungle, right? So everybody is a lion if you get up early, early, early. Now, to be clear, those people have a tendency to get up eh, somewhere between 445 and 530 naturally. Like there's no alarm clock needed for these folks. Like they're up and at them and kind of ready to go. They have a tendency to be like my COOs. They're very organized. They like to make a list every day and go from step one to step two to step three. Is this sounding familiar to you perhaps? It does. My husband talks about my list. And if you saw right next to my microphone is a whole list of things I need to do. <laughs> see, see what I mean? So lions are great, but it's not always the best to be a lion. By the way, people have lion envy. They wish they were lions. Here's the problem. And you already mentioned it. Dinner and a movie is kind of out for a lion. They've been up since 4.30 in the freaking morning. There's no way they're going to a movie at 10 o'clock at night or what have you, you know? So there's a social kind of con, if you will, but there's a productivity kind of pro there. People in the middle, we call them bears. They used to be called hummingbirds. I'm not sure why they were ever called hummingbirds, just to be clear. I've looked and tried to find the vernacular on that one, and I've just never come across it. But bears represent 50-0% of all people. So Quite frankly, it's the best to be a bear. The nine to five schedule works perfect for a bear. They get up around 7.30, they go to bed around 10.30. Um, bears have a tendency to be a little bit more on the extroverted side. They're more friendly. They have a tendency to get a lot of the work done. Lions have a tendency to be more management. Bears have a tendency to people who are like in the mix, like to get it done, like to accomplish those goals, that kind of thing. The night owl, that's me, by the way, we call them wolves now. So, oh, and by the way, I chose animals that actually represent the chronotype themselves. So lions actually have their first kill is before dawn. Bears are very solar sleepers. They get up when the sun is up. They go down when the sun is down. Wolves, many people know they're very nocturnal creatures. They're out and hunting at night. And so wolves or night owls, we have a tendency to be very creative. Believe it or not, sometimes introverted. I'm not much of an introvert myself, but these are my actors, my artists, my authors. If you ever talk to anybody, you know, that's creative and you say, hey, when did you get that idea? Nobody ever says two o'clock in the afternoon. They always say, oh, two o'clock in the morning, I was up and thinking about this and it, I got inspired and all of a sudden that's what happens. And that's very common for that group of people. Now, the final group is the one that I added to the mix. So all three of those had been around since the 70s. I want to be very clear. The research on that was done by a great group of scientists and it was awesome. I added a fourth chronotype, what I call a dolphin. Now, people are, why did you choose dolphin, Michael? Well, Dolphins sleep unihemispherically. So half of their brain is asleep while the other half is awake and looking for predators. And I thought that's kind of like an insomniac. You know, they're like never quite asleep. Also, dolphins are the coolest mammals in the sea. So who doesn't want to be a dolphin, right? So when I wrote the book, it's primarily for my dolphin clients. So these are people who are a lot like my lions, but they got a bunch of anxiety on board. So they're high functioning, but they're vibrating at such a high intensity that it's like their work is never done. You know, they're the people who are like, I can always do better. I can keep going. I can keep going. They're the people who are tapping their foot like this all day long, right? They have a tendency to have insomnia. They have a tendency to have, to crave a longer sleep bout, but actually have a short one. So they might sleep for only four sleep cycles, but they really want five or six if they ever can. So once you figure out which one of those four that you are, and by the way, go to chronoquiz.com 
Com. Once again, we'll put that in the show notes. You can figure it out. It's free. It doesn't cost you a dime and you will learn a whole host of cool stuff. That's so amazing because I think, you know, being the parent of two teenagers and being aligned and struggling, like I've actually said to my husband, dude, it's tough. When they start driving, we're going to have to pull straws. I may have to take a nap because there's no way I'll be able to stay up as late. They think it's my teenagers. They're 14 and 16. Very athletic, smart, but they think it's funny that mom will fall asleep if everyone turns the lights off if we're watching a movie. Cause I will, I'm like, it's just a given I will fall asleep. So, you know, you mentioned that melatonin kind of starts to drop off in middle age. Mm -hmm. Are you a fan out of curiosity? Cause this is a rabbit hole I'm down right now is the antioxidant potential of melatonin is phenomenal. Are you a fan of supplementation? Do you think that's a bad idea? So what are your thoughts on melatonin supplementation? Yeah, so I'm glad we get a chance to talk about this. So first of all, there's a lot of misinformation out there about melatonin. So I'm just going to rattle off the data as I know it. So number one, 95% of melatonin is currently sold in an overdosage format. The correct dose for an adult is somewhere between a half and one and a half milligrams. Good luck trying to find it in anything other than threes, fives, and tens, because it's out there in the overdosage format for sure. That's number one. Number two, it's a hormone. A lot of people don't know that. It's not an herb. It's not quote a, I guess it falls under the category of supplement, but it is a hormone. You don't just walk down to the local CVS and buy testosterone or estrogen. And there's kind of a reason for that. Somehow or another melatonin scooched under in back in 1980 into this area that the FDA is not regulating. The third thing is a study was done about a year and a half ago. They pulled 15 bottles of melatonin off the shelf. They looked inside each one of them, not a single one not one had what they said on the label inside the pill, not one. Massive overdosages, massive underdosages, almost never exactly or even close to where they need to be. So this is a very big buyer beware situation. That's number one. Number two, there's two types of melatonin. Most people don't know that. There's melatonin that's produced by your pineal gland and there's melatonin that's produced in your gut. (laughs) The gut is the antioxidant melatonin, which is great. Melatonin is a wonderful antioxidant. If you have a lot of oxidative stress, this is one of those things that can certainly be helpful. But to be clear, the melatonin that's produced in your head is the one that makes you fall asleep. (laughs) Okay, so number one, why are you taking melatonin? Do you have a melatonin deficiency? Aha, so if you've got a deficiency, makes sense to take it. How do you know if you have a deficiency? I actually wrote an article on how to get your melatonin tested. Believe it or not, we can put that into the show notes as well if people have an interest in it. But there's actually saliva tests that are available. You take saliva at the morning and the evening, then the next day, morning and the evening, and it gives you a melatonin and cortisol curve. If you're deficient in melatonin, then it makes sense to supplement with melatonin. But if you don't have a melatonin deficiency, all you're doing is you're shoving pills in your body that while they will have some antioxidant effect, are probably not going to have the effect that you're kind of looking for. A couple of other things to remember. Melatonin is by prescription only in Europe. Most people don't know that. And at high dosages, it's a contraceptive. Yes, you heard me say that correctly. Look it up. At high dosages, it's a contraceptive. So I cannot think of anything worse for a young female developing body than to have a contraceptive introduced when it's unnecessary. I think that the pediatricians that are out there who are telling moms, just give your kids melatonin, 
are incorrect 100% of the time. In fact, I've even seen menstrual cycles get affected by melatonin in the past. So you really have to think through this idea of giving children melatonin. Also, to be clear, when children aren't sleeping well and you give them a pill, now they think they need a pill to sleep. I think that's a bigger problem than even giving them the melatonin, which by the way, 99.9% of them have plenty of melatonin on board. There is one group of people who are actually really good melatonin users and should be using melatonin. And these are children on the autism spectrum. There is significant data to now show that three to four milligrams at night for these kids can be very, very effective. You need to check with your doctor and you need to make sure that that melatonin doesn't have an interactive effect on any other medication that that child might be taking because this is a circadian pacemaker, folks. When you put it on board, it's going to speed up or slow down what's going on in your metabolism. This is not just pop a pill and hope that it works. This will change everything else that's going on inside your system. To be fair, the only time I like melatonin is for jet lag. In that instance, use it all the time. My favorite melatonin out there, and I have no financial uh, backing by these people, it's called Herbatonin, H-E-R-B-A-T-O-N-I-N. It's the only natural melatonin I've actually ever seen. It's made from seagrass. So I know that it's 100% organic and it's actually at the right dose. So if you're looking for melatonin for jet lag, or you maybe you're age 55 and you realize you have a melatonin deficiency, maybe you have a child who's on the spectrum, that's the route I would take. That's really, really interesting. And I, I think you know the, the caution about buyer beware, this is why I'm a fan of pharmaceutical grade supplements that if you're Absolutely. choosing, if you're working with a healthcare professional and, and they're re- making recommendations, getting something that's high quality, fascinating about the contraceptive isn't that interesting of melatonin so are what type of uh, like are we talking about a dose of like 10 milligrams can actually have that effect or is it super physiologic i'm just curious this is a curiosity question so the bottom line is we don't know 100 percent of the time in europe it's being used in the 50 uh, 75 and 100 milligram dosage for uh, contraceptive, at least the last time I looked it up. And to be fair, that was quite a while ago. So we'd have to kind of go back in there and look at it. It's not known as the best contraceptive out there, but it does have those capabilities to it. So it's definitely something that once again, I can't understand why any pediatrician in the universe would think this was a good idea. Now, look, for young boys, their sperm is reproduced every 24 hours. I get it. Women are born with all their eggs. That's it. So in my universe, we try to keep that as pristine as humanly possible. I love that. It's certainly very important. Now, in your new book, you talk about not only the chronotypes, but you also talk about body habitus. And I found this fascinating. And I was actually sitting, getting highlights and like taking the quiz while I was (laughs) telling my hairdresser, I was like, you got to buy this book and check this out. So let's unpack that because it's really interesting taking your sleep type, your chronotype, and then aligning it with your, you know, your body habitus, the shape that you are kind of genetically designed to be. Exactly. Exactly. So it was really kind of interesting. And I'm going to back up and tell the story of how I got into looking at body habitus. So in my fourth book, my co-author, her name is uh, Stacey Griffith. So for folks who may or may not know Stacey, she is the founding trainer of this company called Soul Cycle. It's the indoor bicycle things, you know, that people do. And um, she was training me and I was helping her with her sleep because I do that for people all the time. And we were talking about our clients and she said, you know, some of my clients, they tell me they're exhausted. And I'm like, well, 
well, are they sleeping well? And she's like, you know, I don't really ask them a lot of sleep related questions. And I said, you know, some of my clients tell me that they're physically exhausted. They're not sleepy exhausted. They're physically exhausted. And she said, well, are they working out? And I was like, you know, I don't really ask those. I mean, it's not what I do. Right. And so we were like, aha, we need to combine forces and we need to start thinking about how can movement and sleep, how do those two things kind of coexist or coalesce in an appropriate way? Um, and so I turned to Stacy and I said, well, how do you determine which exercises that you give people? Because if I was going to, you know, prescribe exercises, you know, how do you do it? And she said, well, I look at their bodies and then I determine it based on their bodies. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, well, look, if I got somebody who's kind of on the big side, I don't tell them to get on the treadmill because they hate the treadmill. They feel defeated on the treadmill. They're never going to go back to the treadmill. She said, I have them do resistance exercise, like weightlifting, because they're better at that. And then we slowly bring them over, but we keep them motivated. They stay exercising and it works much better. And I said, are you talking about body type? And she was like, what do you mean? And I said, remember back in high school, high school biology, where they had the endomorph, the mesomorph, and the ectomorph. And she's like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm like, Okay, now we got something kind of interesting here. So we decided to combine the four chronotypes with the three body types to see what would happen. So the good news is I've had a million and a half people take the quiz. And so we sent out a survey that said, hey, anybody wants to take body type quiz? And we started to learn some things. This is where it got really interesting. So one of the first things we discovered was that there are very few lion endomorphs right? So review everybody. An ectomorph is your long and lean. A mesomorph is kind of more of a V-shaped. Your shoulders are a little bit bigger than your waist. And endomorphs are a little bit more of a pear shape. You have a tendency to hang weight on the spare tire around your belly or on your hips and buttocks area, okay? Well, we learned that there are very few lions, early, early morning people who have that body habitus. Most of them are ectomorphs, are long and lean, or the other half are mesomorphs, are more muscular. Well, that's kind of interesting in and of itself. So we start to understand and, and see these different relationships evolve. And then we started getting into intermittent fasting. Now, I know that this is an area of expertise for you, for sure. And to be very honest with you, we were not interested in taking on this huge area of nutrition. We knew that sleep and movement seemed to have an effect on one another. I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not somebody who has, and to be fair, there's so many cultural differences. There's so many food choice differences. So what we said was we want to look at the process of eating in a way, shape and form that can give people clean energy. Intermittent fasting is really the best source for doing that. If you know anything about this thing called autophagy, um, where our cells turn over based on fasting, it turns out to be incredibly healthy, really good for you. Um, I happen to be friends with Victor Longo over at USC, who's done a lot of this seminal work. And so I said, let's use intermittent fasting as that basis, but we're going to do it a little bit differently. So here's what we ended up doing. So I've been an intermittent faster for over six years. So before I even started writing the book and what I discovered when I first started intermittent fasting was I can't eat in the morning. So I'm a wolf, right? When I wake up, there's no universe where I can swallow. Like I've literally thrown up trying to eat early in the morning. Like it just doesn't sit well with me. I can eat probably around 1130, 12 o'clock is when I can kind of have my, so I started to say, well, why don't I just, I'm a night owl anyway, right? I'm a wolf. Why don't I just shift my schedule and sort of see what happens? it became even more effective when I did that. Aha, now I'm on to something. So what we've done in the book now is we're teaching you how to use your chronotype to tell you when to intermittent fast. The second thing had to do with body type. We were looking at, okay, how long? 
right? Like there's not any great guidelines out there for people to say like, how long should you, like as a start point, where should you start? So what we decided to do is we started to look at what our body habitus really looking at. It's metabolism, right? Long and lean have a fast metabolism. Mesomorphs have a medium metabolism. Endomorphs have a slower metabolism, right? So then I said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. So for our intermittent fasting start point, how long should you be? If you're an ectomorph, remember long and lean person probably doesn't want to lose any weight. You're going to feed for 12 hours, fast for 12 hours. Mesomorphs, again, more of the athletic body type. You're going to feed for 10 hours, fast for 14 hours. Notice what I did. I just jumped it two hours one way, two hours the other. If you're an endomorph, same thing. You're going to, let's see, feed for eight hours and fast for 16 hours. This gives everybody a starting point, right? And lots of people are like, Michael, I don't know where to start. Am I supposed to do an 816, a 12, 12, a 14? I don't know. So this helps people based on something that's genetic. And so remember, your body type isn't something that you change. This is something that you're born with. Also, you're born with your chronotype. Lots of people say, oh, I want to be a lion or whatever. Eh, it's not going to work. Trust me, it'll change over time. But these are the ways you kind of do things. And so now, We've got this ideas around intermittent fasting. We know when to fast and we know how long to fast for. We also know when to go to bed and when to wake up based on our chronotypes. The last area was what Stacy was so involved in, which was movement. Now, I want to be super duper clear. Oh, I want to jump back to intermittent fasting for one half of a second. If anybody out there who's listening has an eating disorder, intermittent fasting is not for you. I want to be very, very clear about this. You have a relationship with your doctor or healthcare provider. That's about how you are supposed to eat. Do not adopt something new. That is a specific relationship that you have with them. If you're walking down that path. I want you to stay on that path. Okay. You can do all the things in the book without doing the intermittent fasting, but I want to be very, very clear for anybody out there who has an eating disorder. Intermittent fasting is not for you. Moving on to movement. We decided, okay, how are we going to do this? So started talking to Stacy, and I was like, you know, how do you keep people motivated? And she says, well, honestly, I don't exercise them. I move them. I'm like, okay. Now I'm all of a sudden, as soon as she said it that way, I was like, I'm starting to understand. Because remember, sitting is the new smoking these days, right? So we got to get up and we got to move. So I decided, she came to me and she said, let's write a book about movement, about sleep, and intermittent fasting. And so we were, let's go. So we started writing the book and really started to try to understand like, what is energy? That turned out to be a much more difficult problem than we had imagined because sleep is easy to measure. Stages, you know, cycles. I mean, people have been measuring this in medicine for 30 years. Who the hell measures energy, right? Nobody. So we were like, okay, how are we going to do this? So we came up with a scale. Uh, we used actually uh, Gunnar Borg's perceived exertion scale. So ratings of perceived exertion. So this is a scale that's been used in physiology for many, many years, exercise physiology in particular. And it's how much resistance or how much effort are you putting into something? So how much energy do you have to give something? So we had people start to look at their energy five times a day. So right after you wake up, right before lunch, after lunch, before dinner, and then before bed, um, just give us a rating because here's the thing. Nobody ever shows up at my office and says, Michael, I got too much energy. Nobody has ever said that to me. Most people say, Michael, I don't have energy at this time of day. And people don't seem to notice exactly. And there's trends. So we had them monitor themselves for a week to see during these five times, where was the lowest energy? Then we decided we had to define what type of energy was it. We came up with five different types of energy. So there's physical energy, you know, moving energy. That's easy. There's resting or sleeping energy. There's fuel or food energy. There's emotional 
energy, which is one of my favorite ones to talk about. And then the fifth one, which we did not put in the book is spiritual energy. Quite honestly, you could write a book about spiritual energy. So, mm -hmm. and that's not my area of expertise. So I put that one to the side. So we take a look at these four energy types and we help people identify, okay, what time of day am I low? What type of energy am I low on? And then we give you different things to be as solutions to said problems. The best one is moving. So you've been monitoring yourself five times a day. Now we have you switch that over and we say, we just want you to move, not exercise by the way, but move five times a day. So the first movement is a stretch. So right after you wake up, I actually do this one while brushing my teeth usually. It's just, you know, cause your body's been lying there for six, seven, eight hours. And one of these, you know, kind of one of these, right? Get it going, loosen it all up. Then you're much better. Right before lunch, we do a shake. So uh, you ever notice uh, when a dog gets up, what does it do? you know, it does that crazy thing that does, right? Like I just did it. Now I feel different. So that is energetically changing your energetic profile. So what do we do? We shake our arms, hands, our feet, just for a couple of minutes, you'd be shocked because number one, it takes you away from your zoom environment, right? Number two, you're thinking about something else. And number three, you're pushing the blood distally, which actually causes a mild alertness factor. And again, changes your energetic profile. The third one you're going to do is called a bounce right? It's exactly what it sounds like. Jumping jacks, skipping rope, just skipping down your neighborhood. I know it looks ridiculous. It's a lot of fun. I do it. My neighbors think I'm insane, but it changes me energetically like that. And I'm just having a good time. The fourth one is called a build. And so this is where you use a major muscle group. So you might do some push-ups, might do some squats or some sit-ups. To be clear, this is not an exercise program. This is a movement program. That's exactly how Stacy designed it. The final one is a balance. So maybe a tree pose or something like that before the end of the day to help kind of center you and bring you kind of where you need to be. And so that's the whole program for Energize. And so you take the chrono quiz and you take the body quiz, and then all of a sudden it tells you when and for how long to intermittent fast. It tells you when and how long to sleep. And then it tells you when and how long to move. And so if you follow this literally within 30 days, almost every single person we've had doing this thing, they love it. And look, you don't have to be perfect. Okay. It's not like you, everybody's out there running a marathon or doing those kind of things. It's really about finding your groove, if you will, and then just keeping it going. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered 
armor colostrum. And the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. I think one of the things that I appreciate and like about the kind of methodology is that it's, it's sustainable and it's not someone saying I have to get up at five 30 in the morning and I have to go to CrossFit. So it makes it, you know, these little chunks, like that's one thing that I, when I'm working with people and, you know, they've been a couch potato and I just want them to walk. And I use the word movement because someone actually told me once the word exercise gives them hives. But I was like five minutes, walk five minutes after a meal. That's it. And they're like, I can do that. I can do that. I can't do an hour. I can't do an hour of anything, but I can do five minutes. And so it's a really good starting point and certainly one that is hugely impactful. I wanted to back up and talk a little bit more about sleep because as I stated before, this is certainly, obviously it's a huge focus of your work, but it's also something that I think is innately important. And, And on so many levels, you know, during the past two years, during the pandemic, I think people in many ways are are starting to think more thoughtfully, you know, maybe they wear an aura ring or they've got another device that kind of measures their sleep quality. And admittedly, I have mine on proudly and uh, it keeps me honest with myself about my sleep quality. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about just the actual physiology of sleep and the stages and REM sleep versus deep sleep and the benefits, I would love to kind of unpack that because- You know, I talk a lot on social media about how I measure these things and it really gives me a good sense of, am I on track? Am I doing enough stress management? Am I not doing enough? Mm-hmm. And so I think it would be hugely helpful to hear a little bit about the details from someone other than me. Like I always sure. say, I try my very best, but this is not my area of expertise, but certainly it is yours. It is mine for sure. So number one, full disclosure, I'm on Aura's advisory board. And so I know a lot about their science and I'll be very honest with you. Their science is pristine. They're, they've got the probably one of the best researched devices that I've seen. They did a head-to-head study against all the trackers and they came out on top with Fitbit. So for folks out there from an accuracy standpoint, the Aura and the Fitbit are good at when you fall asleep, when you wake up in total sleep time. 
or went one step further and they actually did versus full nighttime polysomnography, which is actually a full sleep study for folks out there. And they came up 85% as accurate as full nighttime sleep study, which turns out to be better than almost anybody else out there. And believe it or not, there's night to night variability. So if you went into a sleep study one night and when it's the same sleep study the next night, it would be 15% different anyway. So I really think that we're at a place now where we can say that we can somewhat accurately assess what are we doing during our sleep. That's number one. Number two, who cares, right? I mean, let's be honest. So when we start to look at how are we tracking and what are we looking at, I want to give people some very specific guidelines, okay? So number one, never look at one data point. Just don't do it. Because if you only get 14 minutes of deep sleep every single night, I don't care, okay? Because here's the thing. There's no way you only get 14 minutes of deep sleep every night. It is being consistently inaccurate. I want to know when there's a delta, when you go from 14 minutes to 407 minutes to 396 minutes, those are the nights that something interesting is going on. But calling me up and saying, you know, Dr. Bruce, I only get, you know, 3% deep sleep every night based on, you know, what I see on my whatever tracker, it's immaterial, right? You really want to look at the differences here. So that's number one. Number two, there's something called orthosomnia out there, believe it or not. And this is where people get too involved in their tracking data. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to get the requisite amount of sleep. And then they have anxiety, which raises their blood pressure and lo, lo and behold, they don't fall asleep. So to be clear, it's kind of like your weight. You might want to look at it every once in a while, maybe two or three times a week, just to be able to sit, to know where you are on course, but you really do not have to look at your tracking every single night. Also, to be clear, if you have insomnia, don't buy a sleep tracker. Just don't do it. All you're going to do is make yourself crazy. You're going to quantify how little sleep you're getting, and that's going to cause anxiety. That's going to make you have less sleep. So if you have insomnia, or if you even think you have insomnia, stop tracking your sleep. But what you should do is talk to a sleep specialist. Now, one of the things I tell sleep folks like that all the time is, hey, I bought a tracker and I think I've got insomnia. What do I do now? Easy. If you go to sleepcenterswithans.org, you type in your zip code, you will find an accredited sleep center within 25 miles of that zip code, right? So go there. You can find an educated, board-certified sleep specialist who can help you, just like I can, be able to give you what all those options are. I want people to know and understand that there are options out there for you for sure. I think it's really helpful. And I love that you introduced me to a new term. So the orthosomnia, much like orthorexia, exactly, which I see quite a bit of. I do think there are personalities where oh, yeah. data is anxiety provoking as opposed to like, I'm a nerd. Like I love data. Like I like numbers. And to me, it just validates how I feel in the morning anyway. So for me, it's like, I think about it and then I forget about it. But if you are someone that's more anxiety provoking, I agree. Having, you know, a lot of these biohacking devices may contribute to more anxiety, which is definitely not the direction we want to, you kind of want to send you in. Now, one thing that I definitely want to touch on, because this was one of the common questions I received when I shared with my community that we were connecting was we already talked about melatonin, but when we talk about hormones like cortisol and neurotransmitters and leptin, and so let's talk a little bit about how hormones are 
balanced or unbalanced, depending on the quality of our sleep. Cause I do think this is relevant to yeah. my population of people mm-hmm. because a lot of middle-aged women or women North of 35 heading into perimenopause, menopause, it's like yeah. all of a sudden, maybe they've never thought about their sleep before, but all of a sudden they get very vested in the quality oh, of yeah. the sleep they're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So in my second book, which was called the sleep doctor's diet, lose weight through better sleep. We really kind of double tap down on this relationship of sleep deprivation and weight gain or weight loss, because that's really the very first thing that a lot of women see is like, oh my gosh, I put on a few pounds all of a sudden as I'm getting older, what's going on? And I'm exhausted. I mean, women are exhausted, right? And so number one, let's talk about how does sleep deprivation affect the weight and metabolism, metabolic process. So number one, a couple of things to think about. So sleep deprivation is personal. So I go to bed roughly at midnight every single night. I wake up around 6, eh, 5.45 to 6.15, just depending on what happened the night before. Um, so I get maybe six hours of sleep. By the way, I'm the sleep doctor. So I want to be very clear here. Eight hours is a myth. Not everybody needs eight hours. However, my wife does. And guess what? If she slept the same amount I did, she would be sleep deprived, but I wouldn't be. So I want to be very clear. Sleep deprivation is a personal definition by you. When you wake up and you want to hit the snooze button, you're sleep deprived. Okay. If you fall asleep in under five minutes, you're sleep deprived. Okay. There's some very easy ways to know if you're sleep deprived. Okay. Let's we've established that's personal. What does it actually do? Here's where it gets really interesting. Four different things. And it's really pretty terrible. Number one, as soon as you become sleep deprived, your metabolism slows down. Why? Well, your brain is wondering what to do with the resources that's left in it. It doesn't know why you're still awake. And it's saying, I better conserve my resources. So I'm going to slow my metabolism down. So that's not good. Second thing it does is it increases your appetite. Why does it do that? To get you to go eat because you're up and it doesn't know why you're awake. So now we have high appetite with low metabolism. That's already pretty much a recipe for a disaster, but it gets much worse. So when you talk about it from a hormonal standpoint, which is where you were going with this, we know that sleep deprivation does a bunch of different things to two specific hormones. One is called ghrelin. The other is called leptin. So with ghrelin, we actually see a 20% increase. I call ghrelin the go hormone because it starts with G and go starts with G. And that's the only way I can remember it. But what it does is this increases hunger. Now you heard me just a second ago, say appetite. Those are two very different things in your body. So we now have increased appetite and increased hunger. Leptin is the hormone that makes you feel full or what we call the satiety hormone. You have 15% less leptin. So you've got more hunger, more appetite. You've got less feelings of full and a slower metabolism. I mean, honestly, like everybody knows how this story is ending, right? But it gets even worse because when you have that much cortisol floating around in your head, because you're up and sleep deprived because your brain doesn't know what's going on. So the fight or flight mechanism has hit your brain doesn't like that. So it wants to calm down. And so it wants something called serotonin to come on board and lower, you know what the easiest way to get serotonin is eat a Snickers, eat a muffin, eat a bagel, high fat, high carbohydrate foods. So guess what our brain does? It craves high fat, high carbohydrate foods in order to quell our cortisol by producing serotonin. So when you are sleep deprived, (laughs) you have high appetite, you have high hunger, you have low feeling of satiety, you have low metabolism, you have high cravings for high fat food. I don't see how you don't gain weight when you're sleep deprived. Yeah, no, it's, I think one of the statistics that when I did my first Ted talk that I really like hung on to fervently was for the average woman if you're getting less than six hours a night of sleep, based on the research, 
you are less likely to have a well-controlled blood sugar. Your insulin levels are going to be up. You're not going to crave to your point. You're not going to crave broccoli. You're going to crave chips and ice cream and things like that. What are your thoughts on naps? Are you pro nap, anti nap? So I'm a big fan of naps, unless you have insomnia. I actually just started working with a product called nap jitsu. It's Mm. Awesome. So for folks out there who take power naps during the day, I used to talk about this thing that I call the Napa latte, where you would take a cup of drip black coffee, throw in three ice cubes, drink it, and then take a 25 minute nap. And when you woke up, the adenosine that had been in your head, making you feel tired, had gone away. The caffeine is fits perfectly into that receptor site and you're kind of good to go. Nap Jitsu did one better. So what they did was they give you a pack and it's got 110 milligrams of sustained release caffeine, but it's got 600 milligrams of nootropics. So you've Mm. got like ashwagandha. I know it's really cool. You got like ashwagandha, L-theanine, L-tyrosine. And so all of a sudden, instead of waking up with energy, you wake up with energy and focus. So um, I'll send you some, you'll dig it. It's really a lot of fun. So I'm a fan of naps, unless you have insomnia. If you have insomnia, naps are gonna lower your sleep drive and make it just more difficult for you to fall asleep at night. If you're having difficulty maintaining either falling asleep or staying asleep, do yourself a favor and, and I would steer clear of naps. One thing I will tell you that we haven't talked about, but I think is important for people to think about, your pillow. I know that's gonna sound ridiculous coming from a sleep doctor, but I gotta tell you something, sleep is a performance activity, right? And so if you're a runner and you try to run a race barefoot, I got news for you. Your time is not going to be too good. But if you've got your, you know, your running shoes on, your dry fit wear and your tunes going, you can probably run pretty quick. Sleep is exactly the same way. If you've got good equipment, you will sleep better. If you have crappy equipment, you will sleep worse. So I tell people all the time, you need to investigate how old is your pillow? Um, If your pillow is more than about 18 to 24 months, believe it or not, it's probably time to go. My favorite pillow right now that I'm using is by a company called Purple. If you are familiar with Purple Mattress, they also make a really great line of pillows. I actually have both here in my home. So I like Purple Pillow quite a bit, but any pillow that's new is probably going to be very helpful for people. So I think that's an area that people need to be thinking about. And then to be honest with you, there's one other area, snoring. If you're lying next to a snoring bed partner, or let's say that you're female and you hit the perimenopausal stage and all of a sudden somebody tells you that you might start snoring now, this is all part of it, right? So I know that's not the fun part. I'm here to tell you there are some solutions for snoring as well. Two solutions that I've used for my patients. One is called Sinusonic. So this is to help relieve congestion in your nasal cavity area. This is acoustic vibratory mechanism. So it's really cool. There's no drugs. All you do is you breathe in and out of this device and it sends a hum like it's like a a humming signal in and it actually, when it penetrates the sinuses, it actually helps them decongest and your sinuses open up. It's crazy cool. It's like when you pop your ears after the thing, it kind of does one of those. And if you hum at the same time, you'll know that everything kind of drains out really quickly. Same happens with this. So I highly recommend that. I tell people all the time, you want to decongest for better rest. And then the other thing is mute. This is really cool device. Um, I just started using this with my patients as well. This is an internal nasal dilator. So yes, I'm asking you to shove something up your nose, but you won't feel it after 30 seconds. I guarantee it. But like anytime that I drink alcohol, my wife's like, go put your nose thingy in because I don't want to hear you snore because we know, of course, all that tissue vasodilates and becomes floppy and then you start to snore. So having that mute, it's called mute, like hit the mute button. I think they're like 10 or 15 bucks at Walgreens type of thing. Those are some of the fun things I've been playing with these days. That's so awesome. And my husband, 
he unknowingly is going to get some new things because he he thinks that he needs to hang on to the pillow that's like five years old. So we're not and, no that please that's yeah. just gross. Yep. And the snoring when he drinks alcohol. Yeah. He's definitely going to be getting all these little neat gizmos. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you a couple of them so you can try them out. Thank you. Thank you. And I will thank you twice because his snoring wakes me up. So yes, absolutely. So what are you working on now? Are you working on a new project, doing anything new? You know, I've been working on a lot of different things. I've spent a decent amount of time looking at cannabis and sleep. I live here in California where it's both recreationally and medicinally legal. So I have lots of patients who come to me with lots of questions about what should I try? What shouldn't I try? So that's been on my radar lately. Um, If people are interested, I've written extensively on my blog all about cannabis and sleep. So that's been an area of interest for me. And then the other big area has been morning routine. So I've been focusing a lot on morning routines. And so I've been teaching people more about meditation in the morning, breath work in the morning, nutrition in the morning and consistency in the morning and those types of things. So it's been a lot of fun. I mean, here's the thing. Sleep is an evergreen topic. It's like, there's never a time where people aren't interested in kind of what I have to say about sleep. So it's really, I'm very fortunate. No, absolutely. And I look forward to, you know, supporting whatever your next venture is. Thanks. What is the easiest way to connect with you on social media, get connected with your blog, find your books? Absolutely. So my books are all on Amazon. They're super easy to find. Um, if you just type in the sleep doctor, they'll all pop up. Also, that is my website, thesleepdoctor.com. You should never forget that. And I have the same handle on all the social properties. So I'm the sleep doctor on Facebook, on Twitter, on all of those. So we put out different tips and tricks depending upon which platform we're on. So just because you follow me on Twitter doesn't mean you get the same stuff on Facebook. So definitely check it all out and uh, take the chrono quiz. I think that's the thing that most people will find fun and interesting and learn something new about themselves. Go to chronoquiz.com. Awesome. Thank you again for your time today. Thank you. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.